Chapter 20, Part 2 Baghdad Burns Summer to Fall, 2006 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 20, Part 2 Baghdad Burns Summer to Fall, 2006 Operation Together Forward 2 Page 584 The 172nd Stryker Brigade and 2nd BCT 1st Armored Division would form the backbone of Operation Together Forward 2, MNCI's renewed effort to extinguish the sectarian fires burning throughout the capital. In Casey's view, however, the real reinforcements needed to come from the Iraqi forces stationed outside the capital, something he had been unable to force Iraqi leaders to provide for Operation Scales of Justice and Together Forward 1. In an attempt to reverse this trend, Casey flew to Kurdistan on July 20th to press the Kurdistan regional government's president, Masoud Barzani, to agree to the deployment of two majority Kurdish-Iraqi army brigades from the north for the pending operation in Baghdad. With the additional U.S. forces and two more Iraqi brigades, 5,500 U.S. troops and 6,000 Iraqis, Casey and Corelli judged the coalition could stanch the bleeding. The operation, which began on August 7, 2006, had a scheme of maneuver similar to the previous two Baghdad operations, with coalition troops doing the clearing and Iraqi police the holding, a division of labor that Casey still judged appropriate. Quote, Coin is about getting the police to do it, end quote, he told Rumsfeld in August. While the Iraqi police held terrain, MNFI would work with the Iraqi government to build reconstruction efforts in the capital, spurring economic development and improving basic needs measured in employment statistics, power generation, and popular opinion. As with previous operations, Together Forward 2 emphasized keeping the Iraqis in the forefront. Quote, to be successful, we will assist the government of Iraq in developing and sustaining a well-orchestrated security effort that integrates all elements of national and coalition power, end quote, read the commander's intent for the operation. As part of this concept, the 172nd Striker Brigade would not be given its own area of operations and would instead be used as a mobile strike force to assist other American units in clearing neighborhoods. The only significant change from previous efforts was Casey's suggestion to MNCI to construct a berm around Baghdad because, quote, it had worked in Mosul, Tel Afar, Ramadi, and a number of cities in western Al-Anbar, end quote. The perimeter security plan for Baghdad would become known as Lion's Wall, an 88-kilometer obstacle belt around the city that would be tied to the canals and rivers and would include 28 enduring checkpoints manned by Iraqi security forces. As before, the operations would involve the predominantly Shia National Police, the Iraqi Army, and local Iraqi police, with U.S. troops from Thurman's MNDB again working alongside the Iraqi forces. From the coalition perspective, Together Forward 2 was the second phase of an Iraqi-led operation meant to reduce sectarian violence by all sides in Baghdad. From the Iraqi government's perspective, however, it was yet another operation against Sunni terrorists and Ba'athist-affiliated militants. Casey's hope that the operation would also target Shia militants quickly evaporated. When Casey pressed Iraqi leaders to authorize the targeting of Shia death squads in Sadr City in mid-August, 
Maliki forcefully rejected Casey's proposal, accusing the U.S. general of trying to get his government overthrown. The impact of the close election of December 2005, which had given the Sadrists an outsized role in the government, had fully materialized. With a relatively small political base of his own, Maliki rejected MNFI's target packets due to pressure from Shia political parties and pressed MNFI to focus solely on Sunni militants. The impasse drove home the fact that Maliki fundamentally disagreed with Casey and the Americans over what constituted the main threat to security and stability in Iraq. Maliki, quote, was scared to death that the Baathists were going to come back, end quote, Casey later recalled, and the Iraqi leaders saw the Sunni resistance and the possibility of a Baathist return to power as a far more pressing danger than the Iranian regime and its proxy militias. He was less troubled about the potential for a sectarian civil war, he told Casey on August 14th, because, quote, civil war is easier to deal with than the Baathists, end quote. The disconnect between U.S. and Iraqi objectives was not the only problem. As the 172nd repositioned to Baghdad, the two additional Iraqi army brigades from the north once again failed to materialize, meaning Together Forward 2 continued to rely heavily on the predominantly Shia police forces already in the city. These units, some of which were heavily infiltrated by Shia militia members, created a counterproductive dynamic in the Sunni neighborhoods that were the focus of the operation. Their aggressive cordon and search tactics, along with their tacit partnership with roving Shia militants, alienated Sunnis and created the perception that U.S. troops were sanctioning their use by partnering with them. The Shia ISF units were capable of conducting clearing operations, but showed little inclination to secure Sunni neighborhoods against Shia militias. For the first weeks of the operation, MNFI did not fully register these shortcomings, partly because coalition leaders continued to emphasize the transition of battle space to Iraqi control as a measure of success. At an MNFI commander's conference on August 19th, Casey told his assembled division commanders and general officers that 75% of the ISF was in the lead in their areas of operations, and that by December he anticipated 90% of Iraqi army divisions would be in the lead and seven or eight more provinces transferred to provisional Iraqi control. Together Forward 2 was the third effort to clear Baghdad, Casey told the coalition generals, and, quote, this one needs to be successful, end quote. A few days later, on August 25th, Casey assured Rumsfeld that the Iraqi capital would quickly transition to full ISF control. He reported the same to the visiting Iraq Study Group, also known as the, quote, Baker-Hamilton Group, end quote, in late August, and, when asked, assured group members that MNFI had enough forces for its mission. Violence in the capital was down 50% over the last six weeks, he reported to the visiting dignitaries, though this figure was juxtaposed awkwardly with an internal MNFI report the same day that casualties had risen 21% over the previous week and that MNDSE was the only sector of the country not seeing an increase in violence. Reviewing a year's worth of attack trends four days later on August 29th, MNFI officers told Casey that AQI was still, quote, capable of sustaining suicide attacks for 10 weeks before undergoing a reconstitution period, end quote. The growing disparity between actual trends and MNFI's expectations did not sit well with Rumsfeld, who remarked to Casey on August 31st that the planned dates to transfer provinces to Iraqi control seemed to continually, quote, slip, 
end quote, because of security conditions, so much so that he required the general to start reporting the originally planned schedule so the SecDef could understand the reasons for the slippage. As September came to an end, the sectarian violence that coalition leaders had expected together forward to to resolve continued to climb, with the last week of the month the deadliest of the war by several measures. Instead of improving conditions in Baghdad, Together Forward 2 was winding down with a higher level of violence than when the operation had begun. Quote, the results of Operation Together Forward 2 are disheartening, end quote, the Iraq Study Group report would later note. Quote, violence in Baghdad, already at high levels, jumped more than 43% between the summer and October 2006. End quote. As if to punctuate the operation's failure, in the two-day period of October 9th and 10th alone, Iraqi troops found 110 gunshot-riddled bodies in Baghdad. As had been the case with operations Scales of Justice and Together Forward 1, U.S. troops could clear areas relatively easily, but the sparse coalition units would then move on to clear other areas, leaving the cleared battle space to be held by Iraqi units that often had sectarian objectives or were incapable of stopping Shia militias from carrying out killings in the cleared neighborhoods. In many cases, insurgents who could track the progress of the sequential clearing operations around the city were able to leave neighborhoods in advance of cordons and searches and simply trickle back in once U.S. troops had moved on. The Problem of the National Police Casey and MNFI had begun 2006 with high hopes for the Iraqi Interior Ministry and its forces, billing it as, quote, the year of the police, end quote. But of the ISF units that participated in the three failed iterations of the Baghdad security plan between April and October, the police were the most problematic. Among the police, Baghdad's national police units stood out for their ineffectiveness and sectarian behavior. Rather than holding cleared areas, the national police in many cases became actively involved in sectarian purges and large-scale arrests of Sunnis. To a great extent, national police units had been infiltrated by sectarian commanders and militia-affiliated foot soldiers, many of whom had been absorbed into the Interior Ministry under the oversight of SCIRI Interior Minister Bayan Jaber. Compounding the problem was the fact that portions of the Interior Ministry's intelligence and targeting apparatus in 2006 remained under the control of Bayan Jabber's Corps ally Bashir Nasser al-Wandi, the sectarian militant who had run the infamous torture center in the Jadaria bunker discovered by U.S. officers in 2005. Though implicated in numerous cases of torture, Wandi, known by the nom de guerre engineer Ahmed, continued to direct interior ministry units during the Baghdad security plan operations, undermining MNFI's goals by using the operations as a cover for sectarian cleansing death squad activities. The interior ministry itself had been undergoing further sectarian, quote, purification, end quote, with many Sunni and non-sectarian Shia officers purged, usually based on false pretexts. Some of the purging reached levels that triggered MNFI reactions, such as when Major General Ali Ghaleb, a Shia Turkoman from Tel Afar, was dismissed from his position as director of the Iraqi police service for alleged ties to the Ba'ath Party. 
Galeb's dismissal prompted Casey to write a letter to Maliki, noting that Iraq was in a critical period of transition and reconciliation, and that Galeb should be reinstated because he was, quote, a loyal servant of the people of Iraq, end quote. Despite the official appeal from Casey, Maliki did not act on the request. The Interior Ministry and the National Police had also been implicated in a second instance of detention facility abuse uncovered by U.S. forces in May 2006. The scale of the torture, which took place at a location known innocuously as Site 4, exceeded that of the Jadaria bunker. When a bilateral U.S. and Iraqi team conducted a no-notice inspection of the facility run by the 1st National Police Division on May 30th, they found 1,845 detainees, including 38 juveniles, crammed into a facility designed to hold no more than 750. In addition to horrendous overcrowding and unsanitary conditions, the investigators found widespread evidence of torture and abuse, including a heavy hoist and chain device used to lift handcuffed detainees by their wrists while they were beaten and tortured, at times with electric shocks. Blood spatters marred the floor underneath the hoist. The juveniles, the inspectors determined, were systematically raped by the guards, with other detainees volunteering to the investigators that they often, quote, heard children being raped at night, end quote. By early July, three weeks into Operation Together Forward 1, MNDB Commander General Thurman and his subordinates concluded that the sectarian behavior of the national police had become a serious problem. For instance, U.S. military advisors noted that members of the 1st National Police Division's 2nd Commando Brigade, infamously known to Iraqis as the Wolf Brigade, would conduct proper neighborhood searches when U.S. soldiers were present, but would later return at night to kidnap or kill Sunnis and sometimes burn their houses. Meanwhile, 2nd National Police Division Commander Major General Mehdi Gorawi was acquiring a brutal reputation, with dozens of witnesses reporting his direct involvement in torture and murder, sometimes allegedly torturing prisoners with his own hands, charges for which U.S. leaders would demand the Iraqi general's prosecution the following year. In West Baghdad, U.S. commanders saw the results of Garawi's handiwork. As Lieutenant Colonel John Norris's 4th Battalion, 23rd Infantry, from the recently extended 172nd Striker Brigade, moved into the Baya neighborhood near Baghdad International Airport, they were immediately confronted with a sectarian murder they referred to as the Meat Market Massacre. On October 1st, gunmen in camouflaged uniforms abducted 22 Iraqis from a Sunni-owned meatpacking plant in Rashid District, and although most of the victims were later executed, a few survivors lived to tell the tale. Days later, while searching a field that American troops called Dead Man's Corner, soldiers from Lt. Col. Jeff Peterson's 1st Squadron 14th Cavalry Regiment in nearby East Rashid found seven of the victims, one of whom was still alive and gave enough information to pinpoint an execution site. At that site, U.S. troops recovered bullet casings apparently from the Glock pistols used by the National Police. The Americans quickly determined that those responsible for the murders were most likely the 8th Brigade 2nd National Police Division, men under Garawi's command. As a result, Norris expelled the battalion of the 8th Brigade believed responsible for the Meat Market Massacre from Baya and requested that the Iraqi army provide a replacement force since the army was more respected in the community. Nevertheless, 
another National Police Battalion assumed responsibility for the area instead. A decision Norris understandably feared was, quote, only going to make the situation worse, end quote. Abuses like these were not limited to the National Police. Throughout Baghdad, especially on the western side, both the National Police and the local police were involved in sectarian violence. JAM members and other Shia militiamen coordinated with police at local checkpoints as a means of carrying out sectarian murders, a practice that was a common feature of the violence engulfing Baghdad. Driving through a police checkpoint was, quote, like Russian roulette, end quote, one Sunni told reporters in September 2006. Quote, Shia death squads leveraged support from some elements of the Iraqi police service and the national police, who facilitated freedom of movement and provided advance warning of upcoming operations, end quote, a November 2006 Department of Defense, or DOD, report observed. In the Dora neighborhood, 4th BCT 4th Infantry Division reported on November 5th that police attacks against Sunni locals were prompting a violent response. Quote, This past week, the NP, or National Police, conducted a unilateral raid to detain a target. The local nationals believed that this was a militia-led, unauthorized raid due to the lack of coalition forces. As a result, the local nationals in the area began to defend themselves and attacked the National Police. This incident has further impacted the trust the local nationals have for the National Police. They believe that the NP are detaining people at checkpoints and are turning them over to the militia. They state that they do not trust going through a checkpoint unless coalition forces are on the checkpoint with the NP. They continue to state that they do not trust the NP and IP and assert that they are undisciplined, corrupt, and that they only see the local Iraqi police and NP detain Sunnis. They say that the Sunnis that are taken are beaten and tortured during interrogation and show up beaten to death. End quote. Pressed by Sunni locals in October about how to tell good police from bad, one Iraqi police colonel admonished that Baghdadis should not open their doors to any Iraqi policeman, quote, unless he is accompanied by an American soldier. End quote. These dynamics had significant implications for the MNFI campaign plan. On August 25th, Casey had warned Rumsfeld that MNFI might have to invoke Leahy Amendment restrictions and cease U.S. support for the National Police Divisions in the near future. Named for its sponsor, Senator Patrick Leahy, the 1997 law stipulated that the U.S. military and Department of State could not provide assistance to foreign security forces if U.S. officials concluded that those police units were guilty of, quote, gross violations of human rights, end quote. That American officials were contemplating invoking the amendment in the fall of 2006 attested to just how much had changed since the, quote, year of the police, end quote, had been announced at the start of the year. The War of the Ministries, page 589. After the frustrations of dealing with the government of Ibrahim al-Jafari in 2005, Casey, Khalilzad, and other coalition leaders had placed great hope in the seating of the new Maliki government in June 2006. Abizaid, in particular, believed a four-year government of more permanent ministers and a parliament elected by almost 80% of the Iraqi electorate could play a stabilizing role after three transitional governments in three years. 
For Corelli and MNCI, meanwhile, the prospect of more effective ministers and ministries was an essential element of the plan to dissipate the country's violence by non-kinetic means, such as the provision of essential services and the development of the Iraqi economy. This concept echoed Corelli's 2004 rubric of sweat, that burgeoning ministries would be able to speed improvements in Iraq's sewer, water, electricity, and trash systems. These improvements, Corelli predicted, would create economic growth and jobs that in turn would encourage Iraqi militants to abandon violence. Within months of the new government's formation, however, signs emerged that the Iraqi ministry's effectiveness in many cases was sliding backward. By fall 2006, the violence ravaging the streets of Baghdad had seeped into the operation of the Baghdad-based ministries as well, so that each major ministry became a sectarian battleground over which the same warring parties waged a violent struggle for control, often with ministerial staffs and security details transformed into a sectarian killing apparatus for the cleansing of various neighborhoods. MNFI leaders had particularly hoped the transition to a new government would bring a change to the sectarian militia-infiltrated interior ministry. The replacement of former Badr Corps officer Bayan Jabber by the independent Shia politician Jawad Balani as interior minister in summer 2006 seemed to offer hope that Badr's militant influence within the ministry would diminish. However, little changed in the months after Balani's appointment. Despite his responsibility for the torture at the Jadaria bunker, engineer Ahmed remained in his position as the ministry's deputy director of intelligence with little change to his activities, and coalition advisors as late as spring 2007 would describe him as the most powerful man inside the ministry. The interior ministry building itself was part of the problem. Located in northeast Baghdad, the site was difficult for Iraqi officials to reach via Baghdad's unsafe streets, and its various floors and wings were guarded by different political factions that kept nervous watch on each other. Though Balani had been appointed to clean up the ministry's activities, he rarely visited the building, deciding instead to locate his office at the safer Adnan Palace near the Green Zone, which Bayan Jabber had also done before him. Indeed, though Jabber had become finance minister, he kept the same office he had used as interior minister and retained some unofficial lines of authority into the ministry, meaning that in late 2006 there seemed to be two competing interior ministers working remotely from the same palace, one a would-be reformer and one interested in preventing reform. Beyond the interior ministry, other ministries came under greater militant sway once the Maliki government's slate of ministers took their posts. Under acting minister Shirwan al-Wa'eli, a Dawa party appointee who had once been a Baathist military officer, Sadrist loyalists began filling key positions in the transportation ministry, leading to a virtual takeover of portions of the state transportation infrastructure by the Mahdi army and its allies. The Sadrists controlled the ministry's civil aviation department, giving them significant power over the state-run Iraqi airlines, and they also administered Iraq's seaports. More importantly, the Sadrists controlled many of the operations of Baghdad International Airport, including Iraq's Sky Marshals and the British contracting company that provided airport security. In other ministries, the Sadrists used their new official positions to carry out direct attacks against coalition or Iraqi civilian targets, often in official uniforms and using government vehicles and identification. 
U.S. officers monitoring indirect fire attacks on the Green Zone noted that Shia militiamen sometimes fired mortars from within the grounds of the Ministry of Agriculture, where JAM members served as security guards. Most egregious, though, was the Ministry of Health, which under Sadrist influence in 2006 perversely became a sectarian killing machine. Deputy Health Minister Hakim Zamili, a senior Sadrist who had been a junior army officer under Saddam Hussein, oversaw the infiltration of Sadrist militiamen into the ministry's security positions. As a result, the detachments meant to guard Baghdad's hospitals in 2006 instead became sectarian death squads who killed Sunni hospital patients and used ambulances to ferry death squad members, militiamen, and weapons around the city. Zamili's activities were so brazen that his fellow Shia deputy health minister, Dawa Party politician Ammar Safar, gathered evidence and witnesses to build a case against Zamili and his henchmen. But on November 19th, men wearing Iraqi police uniforms abducted Safar and made a series of videos in which the captive deputy minister recited the demands issued by a previously unknown, allegedly Sunni militant group all of which American officials determined was a ruse orchestrated by Zamili to conceal his involvement in the kidnapping. The videos culminated in the apparent on-camera shooting of Safar, who, since his body was never found, became the highest-ranking Iraqi government official to disappear during the country's sectarian violence. Assassinations and kidnappings were taking place in other ministries as well. The highest profile of them took place the month before Safar's abduction. On October 9, 2006, gunmen in Iraqi military police uniforms shot to death Army Lieutenant General Amr Hashimi, brother of Iraq's Sunni Vice President Tariq Hashimi, and the third Hashimi sibling to be murdered since 2003. The fact that Hashimi's killers wore ISF uniforms was typical in that the militants and death squads of 2006 were finding it easy to infiltrate the ISF or to mimic them, all of which harmed the Iraqi public's trust in the country's security forces. The assassination also came at a time that coalition officers were noticing a sectarian shift in the Iraqi officer corps, with Sunni officers like Hashimi often targeted or intimidated into leaving their posts. Just weeks after Hashimi's death, MNFI judged that Shia political leaders in the Maliki government were seeking to impose sectarian quotas in the senior ranks of the Iraqi army in order to place politically loyal Shia officers in key positions. The wave of sectarian killings became problematic enough that on November 5th, Vice President Richard Cheney's National Security Advisor John P. Hanna raised the issue with Badr Corps leader Hadi al-Amiri during a visit to Baghdad. Amiri, whose own Badr Corps militia was deeply involved in the death squad activity Hanna was complaining about, attempted to misdirect blame to former regime members and the coalition for the rise in sectarianism, arguing that because MNFI and the ISF had failed to protect Iraqi communities from sectarian attacks, those communities had turned to militias for their defense. For good measure, Amiri denied any Iranian involvement with the Badr Corps. Nine days after the Hanna-Amiri meeting, Baghdad witnessed the most audacious attack in the so-called War of the Ministries. On November 14th, approximately 50 police vehicles full of gunmen arrived at the Ministry of Higher Education in the Karada neighborhood. Dressed in national police uniforms, the well-organized gunmen closed off the surrounding streets, entered the building without resistance, and hauled away more than 100 ministry employees in handcuffs. 
Not until several years later did Iraqi officials report that the gunmen had been Shia militiamen, likely members of Qais al-Khazali's Asaib al-Al-Haq, who had infiltrated the national police. The gunmen drove their captives, presumably through the numerous ISF checkpoints of the Baghdad security plan, into Sadr city and sorted them by sect, executing the Sunnis and dumping at least 16 of them into a mass grave that Iraqi authorities did not uncover until 2012. The smoothness of the operation, a huge logistical undertaking, illustrated the impunity with which Shia militia death squads could operate in the Baghdad region. These constant pressures on the Iraqi ministries meant that by late 2006, U.S. officials visiting Iraqi ministries often found their Iraqi counterparts living in a state of siege, hunkered down in offices from which they rarely ventured out, sleeping on cots and making the dangerous trek back to their family homes only a few times a month. In some cases, ministries run by one party virtually fell out of regular contact with ministries run by enemy parties, with formerly routine matters such as delivering interministry paperwork, a key component of the Iraqis' outdated paper-based system, having become deadly tasks from which couriers occasionally did not return. Within the larger ministries, different floors or wings were often subdivided, occupied by different parties and secured by their respective militants, so that ministry entrances and stairwells became checkpoints manned by militiamen posing as security details. In this state of affairs, much of the regular business of the government ground to a halt, so that ministries had little hope of spending their budgets other than for personnel salaries. Such conditions precluded the possibility that the Iraqi government could implement a successful sweat-style reconstruction program as Corelli and MNCI hoped. As the sectarian violence sweeping central Iraq had moved into the halls of government, the Iraqi state, to which MNFI had hoped it could soon transition responsibility, had ceased to function. The end of Operation Together Forward II in October 2006 brought with it signs that the coalition's campaign plan was in serious jeopardy and that the assumptions underpinning the coalition's entire transition strategy were crumbling. Neither the seating of a four-year government nor the pulling back of U.S. troops from the Iraqi population had had a stabilizing effect. The killing of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi had not slowed AQI's operations. Three successive attempts at a Baghdad security plan had yielded more violence, not less, and the concept of, quote, police primacy, end quote, in an Iraqi counterinsurgency campaign had fallen apart as the national and local police became parties to the sectarian cleansing of Baghdad. The possibility that essential services and economic development could lead the country out of instability dissolved as the Iraqi state ministries went physically to war with one another. As the Iraqi capital's population fell into a nightmare of street-to-street -street killings, the Iranian regime's Quds force used the chaos as cover to step up attacks on American troops and to help its proxies drive Sunnis out of the Baghdad region. Against this backdrop, Casey's and Abizaid's plans to pull U.S. brigades out of the country in summer and fall 2006 became untenable and they were compelled instead to reinforce a theater whose forces they had been determined to reduce. Finally, the disparity between MNFI's projections and the hellish reality on the ground had caused the president to lose confidence in the strategy the coalition had been executing for two years, 
a development that would soon cause a furious search for a new approach. End of Chapter 20, Part 2 Baghdad Burns Summer to Fall, 2006 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021